out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, and welcome. This is David Eastall. This is also the C86 show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the songwriter, musician, singer, Phil, or Philip, Parfit, one-time member of the Verica Spain, also the perfect disaster, the architects of disaster, um, and a lot more besides, as we'll find out in this interview. Also, just as a big word up, as we say on the show, we've only said it once, but uh, Phil's also got a new album that's coming out at the end of October 2020, titled Mental Home Recordings available, probably online actually, but featuring 10 tracks, including the new single, All Fucked Up. But, I think it's the single, it seems to be the one that's being played at the moment. Also a song called John Clare that we talk about much later, as well as the album cover. Anyway, that's all to be discovered within the interview, but after several minutes of casual chat, as you do in the world that is showbiz, we got down to the exciting subject that was musical genre. I know, check me out, when we were talking about punk, post-punk, and uh, anarcho yes, punk as well as indie and uh, this was Phil's response to that world that is the genre Phil, take it away To be 100% with you I, I've never been a huge fan of, of genre as in, in, in music I, I always just thought there was music I liked and music I wasn't quite so fond of and I didn't ever kind of think that, you know, there was shambling and there was shoegaze in the early days and then it all got, you know, dream pop and what have you and punk and oh, it just didn't, it didn't really kind of interesting. It wasn't interesting to me because it just meant that most of the time then you had to put yourself in a box of you were that type of band or you liked that type of band you know and I it just it honestly didn't interest me and as far as I am aware it didn't interest many of the the other members of the band at that time we just always thought we even said to ourselves we people often asked us oh you 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 know you was a an indie band in the the mid um 80s and the late 80s and blah 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 you know and we just said we were just musicians we were we were a band and we was trying to make the best music we possibly could at the time it honestly didn't interest me to be belong to any kind of genre yes. so we never we never pushed it and as far as i know i don't think we were ever even considered to be a so-called c86 band um, we certainly weren't included in, in any of that stuff and um, weren't really either darlings of the enemy, although there were a few writers on the enemy at that time who really liked us. We weren't generally thought of as being, you know, a darling of the enemy type band. You know? Yes, absolutely. So just before we get to then, what was your kind of, what was the formative years, you know, when you were... Growing up, because normally, you know, when you're about nine or ten, things happen, don't they? You see Top of the Pops. Oh, yeah. I just wondered what your oh, right. kind of moment was, you know, when you were a bit younger uh, and you were sort of... Yes, well, um, I I had 
two elder brothers, and they were into you know the the classic bands of of that time in in the sixties, um, and they were into things like you know the pretty things, um, the Stones, the Beatles, the Kinks, Small Faces, the Spencer Davis Group, all of those kind of things. So I grew up kind of listening to that kind of stuff like Hendrix and all of those bands. And um, uh, so when I was probably, I, I think, you know, when I was about six or seven, I, I decided that I was going to be in a band and that was the only thing that I ever really wanted to do. So I used to do kind of like, you know, um, the usual kid stuff of impersonating your uh, favorite musicians and what have you. Um, so I kind of, you know, would do that kind of thing. And then I, when I then started to uh, choose the music that I, that I listened to myself rather than being immersed into a, a lot of music in the house, I, I kind of then quickly gravitated towards things like um, Bowie and Lou Reed and Kevin Ayers and, you know, Soft Machine kind of stuff, when I started to discover stuff myself. Uh, so Bowie was a huge thing for me in the early 70s. And uh, actually, yeah, Bowie introduced me to, um, to Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground because um, he produced, you know, Transformer yes. and Walk on the Wild Side was a big hit. And that was kind of, I suppose, you know, I was, I was a young teenager then. So I was kind of well into that, you know, um, and the, the glam of it was um, very interesting for me, although I didn't really like a lot of the other stuff. I, I just kind of like, uh, I think I, I, I like Bowie and the music that he made, and obviously Mick Ronson and the rest of the... I, I quite liked T-Rex as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so did you, of, did you sort of navigate things like... Because I was, I don't know, I'm in my mid-50s, so it was kind of, I suppose it was Sweet, were particularly big, and Gary Glitter, God. And then here, yes, in, I, and then here in schools out by Alice Cooper was like, wow, that's amazing. I was 11. Okay, yeah, I, I, did, like, um, I did like schools out and uh, a few of the Alice Cooper things. I didn't particularly like uh, Sweet, Although I did like a lot of their kind of B-side stuff, I, I wasn't really keen on their their pop um, persona. I mean, you know, maybe because I was kind of like I'm a, a little bit older than you, so I was probably able to what I thought was discern what was authentic and what wasn't at, at that given age. Of course, you know, with with hindsight, none of it makes much sense or, or anything like that but you know when you're when you're 14 these things are important so um i like kind of things like mot the hoople and the some stuff like that and these were all bands that were kind of brought to my attention by by bowie i mean i particularly like diggy and the stooges from from just being introduced to it via 
raw power, you know, so. Yes. Um, so that was kind of where I, I was. Um, and then in about 75, I, I think it started to 75 and certainly 76, it, when, the, when the punk movement really began. Uh, as far as I was concerned, I mean, I, I knew about, I had the New York Dolls records and I had, you know, those kind of things from New York, but I didn't, I wasn't aware of it on on the same level until it kind of exploded in the, in the sorts of mid-76. So that's where, that's where I was when punk was happening. Yeah. And that became a, that became a kind of a focus. But, and and then kind of evolved from there into making obviously making my own music on a on a tentative level i think i made my first record in 1978 um and that was recorded in 77 so uh, yeah so that's quite a long while ago and then um i then started to get into the kind of uh, things that were happening immediately after punk, like you know, Joy Division and these, uh, uh, in the punk era, the punk moments, I was into, um, you know, like the Clash and Buzzcocks, Subway Sect, uh, you know, the the whole lot, Susie and the Banshees, you know, the, the normal things that you would have been exposed to. Um, and then, obviously, uh, other things were happening at the tail end of that, which I think was kind of, I don't know, about 78. So, and then I got uh, into things, you know, like, as I said, Joy Division and and those kind of people. And uh, I feel, you know, my next, after that, I think I'm, yes, I made a record in 1980. I had a band called um, Orange Disaster. Yes. And and then um, we yeah we did a few things and we made some a couple of singles and a few EPs and then in and then I had another band called um, the Architects of Disaster the Orange Disaster name came from a Andy Warhol painting of an electric chair you probably yes um, uh, so that happened and then I had the Architects of Disaster and that was kind of um, uh, that that band, I uh, yeah, we we recorded a few things, but the the rhythm section um, and I kind of parted company, and they went on to form Fields of the Nephilim, Blimey. which they 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 wanted to go in that kind of goth. Uh, direction, but I, I didn't really want to do that, so I kind of, you know, the, I dissolved the band and, and started again. Um, but that was, uh, so that was the first incarnation of the perfect disaster, and that was probably around 82, 83. And we had, and we had a couple of nice years, and we did some interesting things. But the the first um incarnation that was uh that became the band or close to the band that made four albums was um around 
uh, sort of early 1984. Yes. Because it's it's kind of interesting because 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 having sort of done these interviews for sort of such a long time, I mean there was kind of an in, yeah I mean because because it was kind of the early eighties you know Thatcher had come into power sort of seventy nine and then you had we had the Falkland crisis and then we had the miners' strike and a huge amount of unemployment yep. and so being yeah, young yeah, and yeah. unemployed didn't actually feel a bad thing from my memory it almost seemed like that was a cool thing to be. And there was the enterprise allowance schemes and such kind of things that gave people a year of claiming some sort of, oh, I don't know, money, I suppose. You know, like basically it was the dole, wasn't it? You got your housing benefit, council yeah, exactly. tax and, I mean, and £30. Pound. the dole with another name. It, yes, yeah, sure. you, you, you weren't on, you weren't on the database or the figures for the unemployment. So, But then, you know, a lot of bands thought, hey, this is quite groovy. You know, we're, we're 16 or 18 and... You know, we're sort of living, and we're now in a band. You know, we can, you know, not everybody formed a band, but there was a lot of bands from that period that came out of that that kind of era of not just the, that that particular scheme, but also just that mindset, really, of of like, well, well there's no future. Not to not to quote the Sex Pistols, but they were they, they did seem did seem to be a bit of a things aren't going terribly well for the the left of centre compared to the right of centre, so to speak. Um, yeah, I, it is it, it is interesting. I mean, politically, I I mean, I came from a socialist family, and I, I always had a, a socialist upbringing and considered myself to be uh, a socialist then as as much as I, I do now. I'm very much on the left of things, politically speaking. Um, as far as the of the forming a band thing, um, it never occurred to me that there was any other option for me, to be fair. I just, I always knew that I was going to be a musician and I, I would have formed a band whatever the landscape was politically. It, the fact that it was um, in such turmoil at those, in those years, it probably galvanized a certain amount of the the left thinking fraternity of, of young young people, you know. So that to me kind of it may have had a cohesion there that maybe wouldn't have been there if that hadn't have happened. But as as far as I can remember, as far as I feel about it now, I would have formed a band and been a musician, whatever happened. Yes. But is it, it, I suppose what's quite interesting is that um, it, it, I suppose there weren't that many other options, so perhaps there was more people forming bands because it felt even less opportunities going about. There wasn't like it was... It, and there was also a little, from my memory, there was kind of a quite a vibe of enjoying claiming the doll money and, and sucking, you know, giving it to the I state. Mean, exactly. I mean, you know, given, given the choice... Probably, if you if you spell it out like that, I mean, most people, um, it wasn't because there was a lack of ambition. It was probably because, uh, to a large extent, there was a lack of opportunity. But I do think um, this kind of, uh, you know, the DIY approach to music is, is, is pretty much what the early indie scene was. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I wholeheartedly support that. The, I think this was kind of the the vapor trail of of the punk era, and and I think the 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 punk era gave um, momentum to a lot of people to 
start bands who perhaps might not have if that hadn't have existed because you would have still been in the kind of mindset of um oh look there's rock stars wouldn't we couldn't ever possibly be like that and and it would have been discouraging to a lot of people but i think what punk did if anything was to kind of open that box and say no look anybody can do it all you need to have is some belief in your creative uh you know source and and just go for it yes and a, and a lot of people did and and some incredibly well you know as you you've been doing that for so long that you know how much brilliant music was made then even though it had you know to to a large extent a very small audience you know obviously it was a thing for people who who kind of read the enemy every word every week but um that was still a, a small audience yes comparatively but that was great that was, that was part of the charm of it and and part of what actually made it great because it was just there wasn't a kind of um oh you know like stadium rock kind of level that that we were at prior to punk it was just like no pick up a guitar learn how to do it and write some songs and get on with it but the but the interesting um, thing with with that, that that i sort of found is that actually when you look back at those record sales from the indie charts you realize actually now <laughs> you would probably be in the top 10 you know of, of the mainstream charts because it was it was yeah. quite surprisingly big and and but the other thing that i hadn't really appreciated was the there were those gatekeepers there was the music press that sold i mean the nme had a phenomenal circulation as a weekly which i know talking to american yeah. musicians were like god you had this weekly and they did all these kind of you know, a the huge circulation, but also they would do, do all those little single of the weeks, you know, live concerts every yeah, week. Yeah, there was millions of things. Yeah, it was really good. The thing about um, uh, one thing that I thought of, oh, I don't know, I can't, I can't remember when I thought of it, but I recall it now. That the thing that made um, the the British music scene uh, uh, like a, a living changing thing was the fact that there were three weeklies so um things were evolving very quickly and sometimes disappearing very quickly but it meant that there was a constant turnover of stuff you know like n new artists and new ma new material to listen to and new fashion trends and you know new scenes happening all the time and this was fed by the fact that it, it was a kind of a weekly Thing, as opposed to a kind of like a rolling stone kind of, um, you know, on a, an America's so big, so everything ha seemed to be happening in, in different scenes quite quickly. Like obviously there was a New York scene, for example, and you know uh, the West Coast scene, but they were not happening in quite the intensified way of. Uh, uh, as it was in in the UK, because and I think it was because you know there was so much happening very very quickly. Yes. And yeah, you're right that the um, the landscape of the music scene has changed so much. It's difficult to make comparisons to what kind of um, sales mean as then and now, because 
if you compare, yes, indie, uh, indie records on, on independent labels did sell relatively um, good numbers, but when you compare that to the level of turnover of things that were in the mainstream uh, charts, it was still very small. And if you just take move that whole equation to now, then obviously it is kind of it's, it's kind of the same, except for the numbers for everybody have diminished exponentially. Yes. You know, it's just it goes on and on and on. But the amount of records that people can sell these days. I mean, if I could sell, if, literally, if I could sell the records today that I was selling then, yes, I would. Uh, I would be shifting a lot more kind of material, but, uh, you know, the landscape is very different, so that's the same for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, comparing, yes, I mean, the, the what Phil Collins was selling was quite different to sort of what... You know, yes, the, the, I wasn't the... going to mention anybody's <laughs> name, but now that you've done it, thank you. <laughs> Phil Collins, God, he was everywhere. Um, no, you said it again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop. Please, can you please stop? I will. Because the, actually the other thing was, and there was the gatekeepers, there was the music papers, but then there was like John Peel, and then every town and city, and London obviously multiplied by a lot, had a venue, you know, an indie night, an alternative night, and yeah, 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 and so yeah, even Norwich, a little place like Norwich had one, but then so did Ipswich and Colchester, and then, you know, obviously you go around the whole country and everyone had that, you know, from Bradford's, you know, the the one in twelve club to the Duchess in, oh yeah, in I in mean, Leeds, could, and then we used to put gigs on in our in I I at that time in the early 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 days, I used to live in a tiny village in in Hertfordshire, and we could put a, a gig on, um, and like you could get a couple of hundred people coming from all over the place because there, even though there was a, a few venues in in you know, reasonably sized towns. There's serving that area of music was still relatively new, so there was a vibrant kind of uh, interesting kind of seeing. Oh right, that band. You know, oh right, they're from they're from our town and they're getting some notice. Let's go and have a look. That kind of people. But then you also had the underground scene of, of people who were really in the know and kind of like followed the scene and travelled like myself. Oh, I mean, we would think nothing of travelling, you know, like a, a hundred miles or so to see a gig that we wanted to see at tiny, tiny places <laughs> in, in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I can remember seeing, um, I can remember seeing Primal Scream in a tiny little place in um, called the Wheat Sheaf. And I, it, was, it was in somewhere like Harpingdon or somewhere, I can't remember exactly the town, but it was, it was a well-known venue on the circuit. It was on the way to Aylesbury or something like that from where we lived. But, uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> you would go, you would travel like, you know, like 60, 70 miles and, and see Primal Scream in a tiny pub. Yes, absolutely. Literally, and they had obviously, they had obviously driven down from Glasgow just to do that one gig, and probably did another gig, and then went home the next day. You know, that was that was the burgeoning scene of of the you know the indie landscape at that time. But 
we we loved it because we was just teenagers and like seeing our favorite bands and being part of of it um in that sense of you know performing and being in the band yourself but also seeing that there were a lot of other bands that were not so far removed from yourself you know so that part of it was actually really cool but being a part of the c86 scene of as as kind of designating that oh you're a c86 band by the enemy you know that that side of it was just nonsense as far as i was concerned but it was great that there were so many really cool bands happening you know Yes. Well, it, the, the servants and people like that were—I thought they were great, you know. So I was happy that they existed, and obviously um, the Pastels and you know other other favourite bands. There, there was just so many good, entertaining on a recorded level, but also on a live level. You know, it, everything was very unpredictable and you never knew what was going to happen or what was going to work and what wasn't, but it was just an alive scene. It wasn't, it wasn't kind of like um, a rock show. That was another thing that never really appealed to me very much. We used to have, um, you know, light shows that were kind of like homemade psychedelia if you know if you can see what i mean you know we used to loop up film tapes and shit like that like you know and just project stuff over us a bit like what the velvets were doing you yes know, early pink early bucks. pink floyd this kind of stuff you know it was all it, everything was kind of like i mean literally you were splicing super eight together with sellotape and it didn't really matter you know it just looked fantastic when you projected it on a wall especially if it was superimposed with other stuff so everything had that kind of like yeah like i suppose for want of a better term diy flavor and that was great yes obviously a lot of people had a lot of really brilliant ideas not always knowing exactly how to do them and i think that's Potentially as well, why um, a lot of indie records sound quite cheap and cheerful because of the way that they were recorded and the experience of the people who were recording them, the musicians and and the producers at the time. And then obviously people got just better at it, and, and you know, and it started to sound really cool by the mid to late 80s. Yes, but then, but, but as an indie kid, that was quite interesting because you had two really different production sounds. You had the, the Trevor Horn-esque kind of, wow, Tina Turner, Dire Straits, you know, Duran Duran, and the other guy <laughs> who we won't mention yeah. from... Um, we won't and, and then, yeah. you, you know, so that was like, oh, blimey, you know, big shoulder pads, top of the pops, big hair, lots of balloons, so many balloons. But then you had the indie kids yeah. shuffling around looking introvert and slightly shy and awkward so and and yeah you're right it did have a quite a, a, a tinny quality at times and some of it was kind of I always remember the first Smith's album being quite disappointed but then Hatful of Hollow which was produced well that was the John Peel sessions and Kid Jensen sound, suddenly sounded much more kind of fuller and richer and like oh yes that's yeah well a lot of that would have been as well that even though for example if you went into BBC studios to record something and you had to record it live the the technicians were proper men in white 
coats, you know, they knew what they were doing with whatever was thrown at them. They had years of experience and they had the top end of the kit that was available. So they could have been um, had, for example, I don't know, you know, they could have had a name that you just mentioned, one of them, in the studio doing a session for a famous radio person one day and the next day you could have had yeah like a, a bunch of shamblers in there just because um john peel said oh right that, you know we're going to have these guys in and so the technicians would have dealt with that and just produced they would have got the best that sound out of it given the time that was available so you know if you had like i don't know uh, a day in the studio or a few hours in the studio, you turn up, you set up your kit, but the guy sitting behind the desk knew exactly what he was up to. So that's probably why those things actually sounded better than some of the records that were produced in a very small studio by uh, an engineer and a pro producer who were just starting out on their particular careers. You know, so yes. I think that's what that's what makes that sound different but then but then with your, your you know the perfect disaster you were sort of very much there on that kind of musical zeitgeist of the 80s weren't you it, it kind of all lined up quite well for you because yes um we had uh, we had we um had some uh, very good opportunities to make some really good records but um our our approach well my approach to to it was um that you know as a band we worked really hard we so we tried to play as many good gigs as we possibly could and we and we rehearsed a lot my i was interested in um and so were the so were the others in the band we were interested in just getting the best sound that we could we were all very much into sound. It, it wasn't. I wasn't really interested in being um, a shambling band, you know, or, or being. Um, I mean, when you say amateur, it it has a a mauvaise connotation, you know. Um, it it sounds like uh, you're not very serious about it. So, but I don't mean it like that. There, there is a, there's a kind of a good side of being amateur as well as you know the bad side of it uh, but i just wanted to just get the best quality i could i could uh, with anything that i had so you know if, if i could get you know the best guitar i could uh, afford or the best recording equipment the best amplifiers and we was always looking either at um looking back at what our so-called heroes were using so you know obviously um in the 60s for example a lot of people british bands were using vox and uh selma and, and and stuff like this the on the valve side of stuff and so we gravitated to towards that because they we thought oh right so that's the sound we want that you know that kind of tubey crunchy sound that you know so many british bands had at that time and and we thought okay right so that's the way to do it so there you go you get your um you know the best fender telecaster you can afford you get the best um 
you know outboard gear that you can afford and you get you get a nice vintage amplifier and and see where you go and and you're kind of learning as you go along like like anything like they would have been doing in the 60s when the new amp came out everybody would probably think oh right cool that's much better than that fucking shitty thing that i had before let's get those yes and and the, the thing with you know the valve you know the valve technology of amplifiers when when vox and selma brought out their amplifiers these the the tubes that they used in the amplifiers were all you know the same stuff that um was used on in aircraft and submarines since the war you know like in listening listening equipment and spy equipment and shit like that you had to have the best you can produce so and then that was transferred over into the bbc studios for broadcast and stuff like that so we had an enormous amount of technology even though you think it's not very technological these days you you had the kind of cutting edge uh, uh, period of what you could do with sound at that time so when it came to the to the 80s and the indie bands uh, a lot of people were kind of not so, not so much interested in that but personally i was very interested in trying to get a really what's, what's uh, sort of an overused word sort of a kind of authentic sound that was what i was interested in so when we recorded with um the perfect disaster the first album uh, has got some very nice things on it i think in, in terms of sound second album uh, was an improvement asylum roads that's the second album there are some things on there that i think you know very much stand up to scrutiny uh and some that don't quite and then we recorded our third album up which was probably um the kind of thing that we were uh sort of known for at, at the height of being of our notoriety which wasn't very high to be fair um but still uh that was kind of uh yeah we would i know i can remember when we was recording up um i remember you know everything that we had it was just it was all the equipment and everything that where we were where we recorded it what what the settings of the amplifiers were and everything else because we by then we had rehearsed a lot and and really gelled as a band and then we just kind of went into the studio and crashed it out really yes and what about heaven sent heaven sent um yes that's that's the kind of uh already the writing although we, we carried on for a couple of years after that the writing was on the wall really as as far as for the band it was kind of the beginning of the end it, because we had um you know we had been together for a for a good while and we uh for a good few years and we kind of reached a, a level um i think that we probably would have given the opportunity um 
taken it to a slightly higher level if the the personnel in the band had managed to stay together, which we, which we didn't because um, of, for various reasons. I probably think that the turning point was when we played with the Pixies and Josephine um, had a friendship with Kim Deal and they so they went off to form the Breeders and so that was kind of very difficult for us because we already had a tour for Europe planned and the studio to record Heaven Sent was booked but um, things were beginning to get difficult because there were, you know, um, uh, differences of focus that, were, you know, we weren't as focused as a band as we as we were when we re we were recording up. So um, by the time it came to the end of Heaven Sense of of the recording, uh, you know, we kind of knew that it, we were going to have to delay the release and cancel the European tour and, you know, uh, then have a period of uh, searching for a replacement for Joe. And that kind of, uh, that sort of, you know, took the best part of a year to get it, to get it all rolling again. And by that time, it was sort of like, you know, we'd run out of steam. Yes. And did you, I mean, because at that point... Because we'd had the sort of the indie pop years of, I mean, this is kind of quite simplistic, you know, the Smiths. And then we had the world that was ecstasy. And then it was the sort of the dance scene that started to happen. But then underneath that as well, there was, you know, My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the Faith Healers and that North London scene as well. And then, you know, a bit more kind of noise and feedback and, yeah, that kind of groove i suppose did did you sort of feel yeah, at that point that that was kind of like oh actually we've we're sort of at the right place at the right time here you know because yeah like you said you had the peak season throwing muses and then obviously this seattle scene started to appear and we'd had husker do and big black and sonic youth but then there was definitely a feeling in 89 90 that things were just getting really exciting again yeah we um i mean during the during that year of 88, 18, the, towards the end of 88, 89, um, it, was a, it was a good period for us. And there were, there were a lot of really great bands, you know, happening a lot, a, a lot from, from the USA and uh, Australia and, and the UK, some in Europe. But, the, yeah, we played... Um, we played a lot with, uh, well, we played, we toured with Mary Chain, we played with the Pixies, we played with My Bloody Valentine, Oof, you know, so many other bands that um, I can't remember all off the top of my head, but we played a lot with the Spacemen Free. Um, and then, you know, we, we had a, a period where the British kind of noise scene was actually, yeah, it was quite, quite cool. Yes. I think. So I, I, I certainly enjoyed it. You know, it was, it was just one of those things. I mean, in terms of, um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just hypothetical, so I don't even want to go into that. But, some, you know, things happened in the band, and then, um, you know, if we would have, if we would have been able to carry on for, you know, a bit longer, if we had been on a different label, if we had blah, 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 you know, so it's, it's just, that's, it's not even, there's no point even going there. I don't, I don't. I don't do that. What happened happened, and I just carried on doing stuff, you know. So I carried on. I when the perfect disaster finished after sort of a year or so after Heaven's Sense, um, we had an offer to go to America. Some of the band didn't want to do it. I was up for it, and they didn't want to do it. And I just thought, okay, you know, look, it's going nowhere. So let's call it a day and and do something else and so immediately after that I um, started to um, make some music in you know different directions I I was at that time friends with um, Jason Pierce and from spiritualized and uh, Sonic from spectrum because Spaceman Free had split as well. Um, I played on the first uh, Spectrum album, and Jason and I wrote some material together. Um, and then he uh, formed Spiritualized. And I went on to uh, create a project called Oedipusy and I signed to uh, Chrysalis Music and uh, so I made an album um, that came out un under the name of Oedipusy called Divan and uh, so that kind of you know that I just took it as okay band has finished and now so what are you going to do so between um after perfect disaster and between and before oedipusy i had another project called the psychotropic vibration which probably um says everything you need to know about the direction that band was going <laughs> um and uh, so we had fun and we, with that we we played with by that time uh spiritualized were up and running so we supported them a few times um, and we did some recording we did a radio session and we made some things uh, some recordings that came out various guises and then but that was never going to be a, I don't think that was going to be a long term project but we did some interesting things and then I kind of then really started to focus on uh, songwriting and uh, coming back to where I was before, nearly. Um, but with, with a kind of slightly different vibe. So I, I did that either Pussy Project and, um, yeah, and then I kind of just continued as I, as I was going, um, obviously with different personnel and... A slightly different direction, but all through, I would imagine that if you actually listen to 
my stuff that I'm doing now, I've got a new album coming out in a couple of weeks. If you listen to that and listen to the very first things that I recorded with with Perfect Disaster, for example, um, you will definitely be able to hear a thread that runs through the whole lot, apart from my, you know, um, gravelly sort of mono, monotone voice. <laughs> um, I wouldn't necessarily call it singing as such, but, you know. Um, anyway, I so there is a thread, you know, the way I play, the way I construct my songs. Um, there are, uh, I've probably got, I don't know, uh, I've probably got three songs that I just reinvent every time I pick up the guitar. <laughs> Something like that, you know. I, I, I wouldn't say that I was an accomplished musician in in the classical technical sense, but um, I'm just a creationist. Yes. So uh, I. So I'm so from your so what you've got at the moment, which is coming out all fucked up, which is all the single, isn't it, that you did? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Be, but before that, was it the case that you did the album "I'm Not the Man I Used to Be," which was on? Milltone head recordings was that the yeah. right? But then what? What was what? Yeah. And before that, until uh, um, going back, was was it just okay. kind of solo projects and and various bands coming and going? Yes, I had. I kind of so um, in so the Divan record got really good notice, you know, really good press, um, but the the little label that was a, a kind of subsidiary of Chrysalis. So I was signed to Chrysalis Music Publishing and they they had a small label. But it, it was kind of, um, you know, it was, it was run as a kind of tiny indie by a guy. Anyway, I won't go there. Um, <laughs> perhaps he was not as experienced as he, as he might have been and, and was a fan of, um, you know... Uh, powdering his nose or something like yes. that, what they might used to say. So anyway, uh, it kind of got really good press, and, but didn't really sell very much. And, and then I recorded a second album um, for Chrysalis. And although they um, said they loved it, they decided not to release it. So that was that was a kind of odd period, and it you know it's just one of those strange kind of music industry decisions that are made by an accountant, not by someone who necessarily loves music. You know, I was playing a few gigs with the band that I put together to record the, the second Eda Pussy album, and the managing director of Chrysalis at the time was there at the gig, and afterwards he comes up to you and gives you a big hug, nearly squeezes you to death and says, that was the best fucking gig I've ever seen. And you think, oh, right, cool, they like it. And then a couple of months later, you get a phone call to say, oh, sorry, Phil, um, we've decided not to release the album. Yes. Because blah, 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 you know, and it all comes down to what it, literally just comes down to when it's on that that level it's just you know it's arithmetic really and if they think they've got to spend x million quid to get it away they think all oh, right well we're we gonna do that or 
are we not, you know, are we going to take a punt on that or or not? And so, you know, because it's it, not. Because um, it's a strange. It was a strange timing because I know I know you mentioned genres, but at that point. You would have thought, because there was a lot of money, there was Britpop, you know, there was a lot of things happening, a lot of powdering of noses as well. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you'd have thought, oh, good, another guitar band, this is just fill, fill your boots. I mean, you know, because My Bloody Valentine, I mean, kind of almost killed Alan McGee and Creation Records, in it? You know, the finance of it and and, the, and, yeah, the, yeah. and the drama. It was like Gone with the Wind, wasn't it, really? It just never came... And then it came out and it was like... It was like it was fantastic, but at the same time, you thought, blimey, that's a long wait. Not quite, not, yeah, not the exactly, anticlimax yeah. of the Stone Roses, but you know what I mean. Um, but it, was, it yeah. was a strange period that they didn't sort of just go for it because it wasn't like dance music was just coming and, you know, it's like just get someone shaking their ass on stage or on top of the pops. Really. Yeah, I think probably um, they may have just been um, spoiled for choice and. You know, it's just one of those things, you know, maybe they just felt that the, you know, I can't put myself in someone else's head, I'm only guessing, but they could have thought, okay, right, you know, well, let's put all the money in this particular option or that particular option, you know, I think it's as arbitrary as that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, when, when that band played gigs and when we recorded the, it was pretty well received, but you know, it's just one of those things. Sometimes, you know, there's there's many elements that have to fall into place before something actually becomes what is perceived to be a success by the by the record buying public or the the public at large, or even you know the people who are trying to manage the project. And you know, if one of those pieces falls off and it's like an integral part of a machine, you know, like for example, a component of a car or something, if one part isn't working as it should, then it can affect the rest of the parts or, you know, it can halt or arrest the progress of of the machine as it's trying to make its way through the quagmire of everyday bloody existence, you know. So, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of things were going on in the industry that was like so, so boring for me, you know, in terms of, um, you know, like all the stuff that goes with uh, um, who's who's kind of powdering someone's nose in the press department, the A&R department, the, you know, it's all endless, endless, endless bloody bullshit. And it, to be honest, it is fairly boring after a while. And if the only thing that you can do is, like, be very gobby and um, obnoxious, and that's the thing that that makes you noticed and people know... Oh, you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but you know, there are, there are a lot of them. There, the louder you are, um, and the more notorious your behaviour is, then that's what gets your face on any given publication, or you know, is it newsworthy? And to be honest, it just, I, you know, all that Brit pop thing between 
certain bands and who was the best and this north-south divide bullshit. God, it's so boring. And I just got, literally, I wasn't interested in any of that kind of stuff at all. I just wanted to make music. So I kind of, in the end, um, I retreated from that. Um, and I, I suppose I, I um, exiled myself from from those situations and I just I kind of packed my bags and went went to live in France and I just carried on recording and writing and amassed a huge amount of work but didn't release anything I just kind of thought well you know if it was if I was going to be if I was going to be mega successful as in terms of actually, you know, being famous, which didn't really interest me anyway, uh, I would have happened by now. All through that process, the only thing that I was really ever doing it for was just to make music and to just to be a, a music artist and try to make some incredibly great music that would stand the test of, of any time period, you know. I wasn't interested in being a kind of like a, like I mentioned before, you know, kind of an indie band with an indie sound. It just was the point. I just wanted to make great music that could have been used for anything, like you know, um, could be used for film scores or could be any, anything really. You know, I wasn't I wasn't putting the music anywhere, and maybe maybe that kind of fault line in my personal makeup but I, I just wasn't interested in the being a kind of famous rock musician so to speak I was just interested in making great music and that's what I was trying to do I think sometimes I got you know quite close to it and other times I didn't but I'm still still trying you know and I'm still writing and I'm still performing and doing the things that I love like recording so yes you know did you and I still have such a great thirst for uh, just a creative energy that I that keeps me going you know so that's that's how I operate yes because did you I mean because obviously France must have re sort of region rejuvenated you with um sort of being able to sort of get away from the UK and that that kind of that the wonderful and murky world that is the music business. But then, I mean, because cause I hadn't sort of got that much about the whole sort of history of the, that Spaceman 3 and that world, but I did a, do an interview with Sterling, was it Roswell, the other week? Yeah. And it did, ah, right. and it did sound incredibly like, you know, I'm not that familiar with the whole story and the setup of that, that bunch and gang, but he did sort of portray it as a bit of a debauched scene, really. How did, did you manage to navigate that okay? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I managed to navigate it, I guess. Yes. Well, he was talking about various managers in bands that were more interested in, oh, in, yes. in, selling, yeah, I know. in selling drugs than yeah. actual... Yeah. I know all the names and I know all the stories and, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, you, you could say it was debauched, but I don't think it was really any more debauched than any other... <laughs> than any other scene to be fair you know i mean it may it may have become notorious and certain people may have become um famous for being uh 
uh, you know, using recreational substances to excess. However, you know, that's like not my business. And yeah, I managed to navigate it and, um, and uh, yeah, I got out maybe by the skin of my teeth. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I kind of, uh, I've always been sort of, I suppose, a kind of shadowy figure in that sense. I wasn't um, super comfortable with kind of limelight deals, you know. Um, yeah, I think I was probably um, just just a you know sweet charming shy mysterious boy who got thrown into a kind of lion's pit of vipers <laughs> and when um when i was confronted with that kind of situation i probably became obnoxious and i think i got a little bit of a reputation for being a bit gobby simply because, you know, I was so wound up when I was on stage. I was so focused on, on just performing and, and doing a thing. I sometimes forgot the audience were actually there until someone would shout out, You're shit! <laughs> At which, obviously, would um, go straight to somewhere in my brain that caused an immediate reaction, um, usually starting with a diatribe of vitriol aimed at the person if I could find them. Um, but, you know, that was more to do with, uh, probably more to do with just kind of like um, nervous energy spilling into, in, into uh, you know, the wrong direction. You know, I, I just, again, was just more interested in, like, the sound and performing the songs or whatever it was. If it was an improvisation, I'd want to, re to perform it as high as level as we possibly could. So, um, you know, if, if people, you know, if people, and then it kind of got that people would sort of just do it for a laugh, just to kind of try and wind me up, and, uh, and then I kind of got into it as well. But, you know, I... I wasn't kind of trying to be a gobby front person, you know, just one of those things that happened and, and I, I didn't really kind of enjoy it or try to live up to it. It was just me being myself, you know. So it's like, um, you know, if you, if you kind of put a rat in a corner, don't be surprised if it kind of launches at you, you know. No. It's one of those things. That's what that's what that was about. But I, you know, so I kind of I wasn't really I didn't want to be an entertainer as such. Even though obviously I'm on a stage making music, and if people are entertained by it, then that's great. But I wasn't I wasn't really thinking about oh, we must do a performance, you know, and it must be entertaining on you know. I, I wasn't really thinking about that. I was just thinking about the music the whole time. And that probably made me come across as being kind of, uh, I don't know, withdrawn or 
until provoked, you know, until, so uh, maybe I wasn't really um, cut out to be that kind of performer, you know, I was more quiet type. So uh, moving away from that didn't present itself as being much of a problem. I kind of um, just figured that I would uh, record and release my music when I wanted to, and, and that's that's what ended up actually happening. And then um, I didn't really do very much for quite a while. I became a bit of a recluse from it, you know, I disconnected from the whole thing. Um, um, and it was really by, um, by, by accident, I suppose, that, you know, um, people who I didn't realize that people had actually been looking for me. I kind of just disappeared. I didn't realize that anyone had actually been sort of actively looking for me. And then I kind of, um, you know, some people found out where I was. And, and then I didn't, you know, someone had put together a perfect disaster fan page. Of, and, uh, you know, and people started writing to me and saying, you know, oh, you know, what are you up to? Why don't you put some stuff out? And I kind of like undenied about it for a few years, and then I thought, yeah, well, why not? You know, let's let's just put some music out and and take it from there. And so, and I put the the last album out. I'm not the man I used to be, and that was nicely received. And I had so much material amassed that I thought, okay, yeah, let's let's carry on and and. And I enjoyed it, and I was, you know, I was really liking what I was doing again. So, I, on a kind of like a, a sort of public level, so I decided, yeah, okay, let's let's get these things out there. And so I I I put that together. It took a little bit longer than I wanted it to, but um, you know, that that's just because I was operating in a very, from a very remote um, situation. But, you know, that's, that's kind of changed now, and, yeah, I'm back into the, the swing of, you know, like putting together a collection of, of songs and, and getting them together enough to, to continue in a sequence of events. So this album the new album that's coming out in a few weeks um, that's it could have actually been a double album if if we had wanted it to be because there's so much stuff kind of half done or three quarters done but in the end we kind of narrowed it down to uh, I don't know a dozen or something um, and then again narrowed that down to ten that we put together for this album and that's that's called mental home recordings um and then uh now i'm just kind of working on the follow-up to that already really because you know a lot, as i said a lot of it was kind of nearly um finished or or half finished, you know, so I've just got to kind of knock that all together. And it's not that the songs that were chosen were better than the ones that were not selected. It was just that um, we were working on a lot of different songs 
and it just just by hazard really you know by chance i mean um that the the ones that are on this next coming album were just finished before the others that's all it amounts to so hopefully um the next one <laughs> won't take six years to produce because it's already nearly done yes and just just um just a couple of things because on the new album it's an amazingly elaborate cover isn't it and also there's a track on there which i was quite curious about called john Clare, which is the um i don't know i think it was the 1800s is that the the john Clare that you're yes he's a he's yes he's a 19th century poet poet yes Um, and he is kind of attached to the the romantic uh poets like you know uh words of shelley keats byron he was kind of a peripheral figure in in that time period. I have had a liking for John Clare for for many years, um, and his story somehow touches me. Um, his life story somehow touches me. To, to the extent that I was very moved by it. And I, I wrote a poem um, about him, uh, or inspired by him. Um, and because he comes from um, a background kind of nearly similar to my own, and from a town He's from just outside of Northampton, um, not not so far from where I did a lot of my stomping with um, the Spaceman Free and Jazz Butcher and you know uh, Spiritualize. They're they're all from around there, and I was from just a little bit south of there um, in in Hertfordshire and. Uh, I kind of identified with the psyche of, of John Clare because um, when I was a, a younger person, I worked, I, I think it might have been actually when I had a, one of the only jobs I had, I can't remember. Anyway, um, I worked in a, a psychiatric hospital, which was formerly an asylum. Um, and I witnessed um, some amazing things and some very disturbing things. Um, and uh, in that time, in that place where I lived, um, there were a, a lot of displaced people um, from various time periods, but from a lot from the Second World War, uh, flooding into uh, many places in Europe, but away from the conflicts, of course. And they were housed in asylum, and some some of those people were, you know, suffering from all kinds of ailments, but shell shock would have been certainly one of them. Mm. And some of them never, ever left those places. You know, I used to know... um, uh, what would now be probably be called clients, but they were called patients in those days. 
um, they were just people who, you know, were completely displaced from their countries and couldn't speak any English or suffering from shell shock or, you know, refugee syndrome or whatever, um, with, with huge mental difficulties and life difficulties. And they were sometimes treated appallingly. And that kind of really touched me at a kind of tender age. And uh, because I recognized in the town where I lived, a lot of the people who worked at this hospital, I mean, the hospital in its height had 1,100 patients. So you can imagine how many staff there were there of all, in all walks of Mm -hmm. work that was entailed in running an asylum, you know, from the kitchens to to the doctors and, you know, all kinds of staff in between, supply chains, everything else. But um, a lot of the people on the outside who were working there were, were no better off mentally than the people who were actually being treated as inmates. And it occurred to me at that time, even though I've probably already known it for a very long time, that um, there is a very thin line that we walk that is not necessarily made up by ourselves as to what is considered to be mad or um, acceptable behavior in in everyday society. So, you know, there's a fine line. Everyone can suffer from depression. Everyone can have psychotic uh, episodes or, or, you know, or paranoia to varying degrees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody, I think pretty much if there's anyone who hasn't suffered some form of mental illness at some point in their life, um, I'd like to meet them. So just to, just to see what they're like, because I think everyone else that I've known has suffered from enormously in, in certain periods, you know, like even you know, from stress, to anything else, depression, mild depression, severe depression, you know, you name it, how many types of depression are there? And some of these people were old people who'd been there for 40 years. Some of them were young kids. Some of them were not more mad than I considered myself to be at this particular time. So it was an eye-opener, and um, it was, you know, it just gave me a an insight into human consciousness that I probably had always had, but it was kind of like um, shining a light on it, if you see what I mean. So coming back to John Clare, so um, he had, um, a, a, you wouldn't call it an uninteresting life for sure, but it was, it was a tragic life to the end because he did spend the last 25 years of his, of his life in uh, an asylum just like the one I worked in. And um, he had been reasonably um, successful at a certain period in, in his life and then kind of went off the rails mentally a little bit. And um, uh, so he got diagnosed with, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but he ended up in in a hospital and an asylum. And he spent 25 years of his life there. And um, he didn't actually 
uh, ever get visited, or, uh, according to records, by not once by any member of his family, and 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 not by many people at all. So he he spent 25 years in an asylum, not seeing very many people, and was encouraged to carry on writing by his um, his then physicians, you know. So uh, and he wrote an amazing poem called I Am and it, I, when I first read that poem a good many years ago I was so touched by it I, it, just, it just went straight into my brain somewhere and just stayed there and then one day I was tinkering about a few years ago probably um, two or three years ago I wrote this um, piece of music and I just started um, reciting these words without really knowing where they were coming from. I do that quite a lot when it comes to um, writing poetry. I just do this kind of stream of consciousness and work it out later. And this kind of thing happened about John Clare. And I just thought, oh, wow, yeah, right, that's, that's news about John Clare. Okay. Uh, it doesn't mention him in the title or in the text or in the title or anything, but it was kind of clear to me that it was about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there you, there it was, kind of, um, all, you know, kind of the, the tech side of it was, was very quickly arrived at, which is something that happens to me a, a, a bit. I kind of write a lot, a lot, a lot of text. And then when I need something, I'll just go into my notebooks and kind of, figure something out and then see how it scans and, and see where it's going and what it's doing with, with any given piece of music. It doesn't always, it's not always like that, but it often is. So, and on this particular occasion, it was, I had this kind of um, soundscape kind of piece. And then I just started mucking around with some chords on it and then the kind of melody and the... the um, the meter of the texts just started happening, and that was, yeah, that's how that came out. John Clare. God, I'll look forward to hearing yeah. that, actually. We haven't heard it yet. Well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely, uh, I'll get you, I'll send you, yeah, I'll send you something over. I'll send you a kind of link yeah. or something. Well, it's interesting, because, just briefly, I remember when I was doing a course once, we had someone come and they, they, they talked about the John Clare Society, so I sort of became a member for a year. And, and so it's always been oh, it's right. always been in my mind, and I know that the John Clare Society is still going and would have probably met this year, but obviously didn't. So, um, yeah. Well, yeah. There you go. Yeah, I I was kind of aware of it. I, I'm not a member of anything like that, or, but I, I was aware of it happening, and I was, I was pleased that in, um, in recent times he has... Um, begun to be noticed a bit. I, I, I think I, I think a couple of years ago I might have seen something called. Um, uh, there was a series on BBC. I don't watch the, the TV, but I must have come across it somewhere on, probably on YouTube or something. Um, a series called The Romantics, and I think it was Peter Ackroyd who right, was yeah. the narrator. And he did, and then I kind of looked at it, and it, there was a kind of um, episode about certain, um, you know, uh, prominent poets from from that period in in that group, and and John Clare was um, 
I'm pretty sure uh, it must have been, yeah. John Clare was one of the subjects for one of the episodes. Yeah. So, um, and that uh, that made me very happy, actually, because I did think I... One of the one of the reasons why I identif- identified with him was that um, I was very interested in his way of looking at detail and nature, um, and that was something that was very close to my heart. You know, so it kind of it just kind of drew me into his oeuvre, you know, and kind of uh, got me into trying to work out what was making his mind tick, you know. So mm. when I did start to look at it, I was like, you know, became quite fascinated with, with it for a, for a certain while, probably while I was writing the piece. Yes, absolutely. And so, look, just briefly, just to, actually, there's just two things. Just the, the album cover I was kind of fascinated by because it is quite oh, yes, elaborate. Yes, so yes. What, what is this, you know, what's the story behind this? Right, okay, so the album cover, um, uh, a friend of mine, a Spanish artist, Fernando Riobol, um, he um, had been doing some illustrations of me over the years um, because he is a brilliant illustrator and artist and I, um, you know, we just struck up a friendship of, I don't know, seven years ago or something like that, maybe a bit longer. And he had done various illustrations of me and one day I just, you know, said to him, hey, look, you know, when we were setting, why, why don't you... Because um... he was a fan a long time before I knew him and he knew my music and stuff like that. So I said to him, you know, why don't we, why don't we do, a, do a cover? And he said, yeah, well, why not? You know, we started talking about it and then I kind of talked to him about um, this kind of recurring dream that I have, which is kind of like um, the part of the cover. So then um, the, we unraveled the dream a bit and we decided to put into the, into the artwork as many of the elements that are contained in the dream um, into the artwork so that's how that came about um and i i can't really um divulge all of the different elements but i mean some of them are quite obvious but a lot are a bit, a bit more obscure because i think that we the label are going to run a competition or uh, to see who can who can get the most or something like that. So, all everything on that cover is a reference to something about either my life or an influence on my musical taste or something like that. Wow. So there, are, there, everything on there is a kind of um, it's a kind of like a clue. Right. I, it did remind me. I don't know if you can remember an artist called Kit Williams. He did a book called Masquerade in the, probably the early 80s. Yes, I do. And there was a kind, yeah, it was I, a I mystery. Think. You had to try and work out the clues and then find the golden rabbit buried somewhere. So it was quite extraordinary. Right. Well, it, there, there isn't a golden rabbit, <laughs> um, but there are a lot of clues. So the, I think that we're going to kind of rig it so that I don't know, we'll give a time span or something, and the person who gets the most will get a 
free album or signed oh, album or whatever, you know. Just, just, yeah, so that's... you got to buy the vinyl record. Is that an octopus or a snake, by the way? It's an octopus. Right, sorry, I just... And that's as much as I'm going to <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, anybody listening will go, what are you talking about? Anyway, you'll have to look at the album yeah. cover. It's good. Yeah, well, so, yeah, it's going to be... So the album cover is um, like a gatefold. Um, and it's got another illustration on the inside of the gatefold. And the CD is the same, but the CD's got a booklet and the album's got an insert. The vinyl's got an insert as well. Yes, okay. So look... Plenty to look at. There's a lot to look at. Just just briefly, because, um, uh, yeah, well, if you could have said something to an 18-year-old self, you know, just like start that, you think, actually, there's a couple of things I would definitely have just... A couple of bullet points, you could almost call them, just to sort of whisper yeah. in the rear. I just wondered what that... That or what they might have been to to my eighteen yeah year old like self. yeah it could be either couldn't it it could be you telling your eighteen year old self or what you've learned now that you would say to anybody who was starting out so it could be now or it could be back then depends on how it's kind of how you prefer to think yeah, about um, well you see the thing is like I said to you earlier on um, my seventeen year old self would have been talking to my six-year-old self about um, what are you what are you doing, what are you going to do, you know, blah, 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 in terms of, you know, your lifespan. Um, so my older self now, talking to my younger self then, would, I, I would just say, look, just go for it. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. And, you know... Um, just be nice to people and don't let fucking morons stand in your way. Yes. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't change uh, what I've done with my life, but I might have changed some things about how I did it. Um, I'm probably, uh, in terms of um, giving myself advice, I'm probably the worst person to give anybody advice because, you know, I'm I'm my own worst enemy in, in the sense that I'm probably uh, overcritical of my um, my output and my abilities. Loads of people tell me how much they love my music and how much it's meant to them over the years, how much it deeply touched them, etc., etc., and that's all. That's very wonderful, um, and I'm always amazed that when people, you know, give me a, an episode of their life and say, "Look, you know, this particular record helped me through so much of my life," or something like that, you know. And I'm just thinking, "Wow, that's amazing!" But really, and I do really like it when people like my music. Yeah, I, mean, I haven't got any problem with that, but um, I'm honestly can say I, I'm just doing it for myself and it's my own therapy and if that helps other people then that's really nice, that's really touching for me but you know um, I would just say to people look just follow your dreams and you know don't get don't get sidetracked yeah I think I think no, I'm sure. We're going to leave it there. That's the end of the interview, apart from the emotional goodbye. But that was me, David Eastall, The C86 Show, in conversation with Phil or Philip 
Parfit talking about life in music and um, also, as he said, has probably went into great detail, uh, the new album is going to be coming out at the end of 2020, uh, October. There you go, just to date it, um, the Mental Home Recordings. We're very excited, especially um, both wanting to hear the song John Clare and also phenomenal artwork. Anyway, uh, a big thank you to Phil for giving me the time for that interview. The quality was okay. He was in France. We had a bit of issue about life, well, technical issues to begin with, but I think we got there. It was good. Um, If you want to contact me for some random reason, make it nice, though, because, frankly, it's 2020. It's been a bit of a tricky year, or a couple of years. Uh, You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, these interviews have been all archived. Yes, they have. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.